Hey everybody, welcome back to Simply Holy Living, a practical guide for living the open-handed life every day. And welcome to week three of our book club, The Unhurried Life, or An Unhurried Life. Um, and welcome to Idlewild, California. You happen to be with me um, in what I'm referring to as the calm before the storm because I got to come to youth camp. This is where we have youth camp. And um, God allowed me to be able to come here a little bit early, which is so funny. I've been doing this for like 10 years. I've never been able to come here early and just sort of sit here and enjoy some unhurried time, which is amazing. So I've had, I'm, I, I had actually planned on making this video before I left thinking, well, if I don't make it before I leave, it probably won't happen. But God had this plan in mind for me and I feel very grateful because I feel so rested right now. And uh, ironically, I actually had even extra unhurried time because yesterday it just so happened that, well, my phone broke um, two days ago, broke uh, Thursday night actually. And I woke up the next day and it wasn't working and I, you know, I was a little shocked and embarrassed by how incredibly dependent I am on my phone. <laughs> I, it was terrible because, you know, I'm actually the kind of person that resisted the whole phone thing. And for years and years, and I was like, oh, I don't want a phone. I don't want people to be able to get a hold of me whenever they want. <laughs> and I don't want it hanging on my head all the time, whatever, whatever. Um, but now I have fully succumbed because it was so funny. I couldn't even, I, my, all my lists are on my phone. Um, everything that I have, my agendas on my phone, but everything, my calendars on my phone, I hardly do anything with paper anymore. So it was shocking. It was a shocking realization of how dependent I am. So anyway, uh, yesterday, the only way that it worked out for me to be able to get it fixed before I, you know, cause I was leaving town the next day was to just to go to the Apple store at 9.30 in the morning and see if I could get on the, you know, the short, the waiting list, um, since I didn't have a planned appointment. And so I was actually, long story short, dealing with my phone from 9.30 a.m. till 5 p.m. It was awesome. So now here's the cool thing about that is I had so much time to share my faith, which you guys know is something I tried to do. I had many unhurried conversations and I met many people. And I mean, I got into really in-depth conversations about God and church and their journey and all this stuff. It was hilarious. It was awesome though. I just really, actually I really was able to enjoy it when I realized, okay, absolutely nothing on my agenda that I had for today is going to get done. And I just surrendered to that fact. I was able to enjoy what God had planned for me. So anyway, I've been experiencing this unhurried time like crazy. And I hope you are too. I hope these exciting things are happening to you. So anyway, we are in chapter three, and as has become my custom, I'm just gonna read the things that I highlighted and maybe talk about them a little bit and then read the answers to my questions. And hopefully it helps you. Um, I'm still reading through everybody's responses to chapter two right now, so um, this, I feel like I'm getting a little ahead, but it is what it is. So the first thing, of course, I underlined in chapter three was our bodies weren't meant to live at such a constant level of alertness and our souls do not function well in such a mode. For sure that hits home with me because I feel like my body is plagued with fatigue that is actually, um, I feel like it's decision fatigue sometimes. I feel like there's too many choices. I've talked about this before. I feel like that also maybe too much information. I'm, I've never been really convinced fully that our brains were made to know 
what is going on all around the world all the time and every bad thing that is happening in the world, I find it damaging to my soul. So as you know, I have um, you know, gradually cut out most everything. I, I, I have the skim, which I get most of my major uh, world information in, but I have to pare it down because my soul just, it, it wearies under the pressure of all the things that are going on in the world. But that is something I have felt. I don't think that my soul functions well with this much constant level of alertness. Um, next thing was being unhurried does not at all mean being unresponsive to divine nudges. Being unhurried enables us to notice those nudges and to respond. And I was so glad that he took this time in this chapter just to explain the difference between laziness, not talking about being lazy, obviously. Um, but, you know, we're so conditioned to think that it is lazy to sort of be unhurried. And that's definitely my conditioning. And um, I think that what has happened to me is I've started to realize over time that um, my constant state of hurry, it does get, keeps me from being able to hear the Spirit. I can't hear. Um, even when I started the way down, I remember uh, she constantly kept saying, you've got to slow down. You've got to slow down. In fact, she just even, I think I said this before, she said, I don't think I can get people to slow down anymore. <laughs> but uh, it's a constant... Uh, called to me to slow down because if I get going too fast, I, I really just can't hear the Spirit. I have to walk very slowly through my day in order to know what the Spirit wants me to do. Um, I loved this uh, when this person, Ger Gerald May, which I'm not familiar with Gerald May, but it says, Gerald May suggests that our efficiency orientation makes unhurried time for rest feel selfish, irresponsible, and lazy. Quote, we know we need rest, but we can no longer see the value of rest as an end to itself. It is only worthwhile if it helps us recharge our batteries. And I was like, oh, that is so me. That totally nailed because I will talk about resting, but it's only in the, um, from the idea that it's a, a means to an end. And I, 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 I will say that that's something, a concept that I feel like God is trying to teach me is that the rest is an end to itself. That's that's the po the point of it, and it's okay for it to be that way. And then I was so so curious about this idea of acedia. When I first read this, um, I had not really I was not really familiar with that term. Although I had um, I was trying to get to this book, uh, Acedia Me by Kathleen Norris. I actually had been trying to get to that book because um, I uh, had never heard of that. Uh, the way of explaining it, but it is something that I have encountered, not even so much with me, but through the teens that I work with, um, where basically, you know, sometimes uh, the, the, the kids that grow up in the church, they may not give themselves over completely to, um, you know, a, a drug or alcohol or something like that, a, a, a full-blown chemical addiction. But I will say that a great deal of the kids that I spend, the, I stay the Bible with, um, have an imaginary life. And it's one that they bring to mind, I think, when they don't like what they're, the, the life that they've been given. When, when life is not going according to what they think it should or what they've been, you know, they're, they're focused on what they want instead of what God is giving. But, um, and I've talked about it a bit, but when I read this, I was like, this is it. I even texted one of the teens. I was like, oh my gosh, I, you've got to read this. You know, and I texted her because we had been talking about it so much to trying to help her as she's been trying to overcome. We didn't know what to call it, so we just called it her imaginations. <laughs> but it is truly, um, a way of escape. It's just a 
uh, I guess, a socially acceptable or even church acceptable way of escape. And um, I love how he says ascidia is ultimately a failure to love. It's a place of apathy towards life and a spiritual, uh, and a kind of spiritual boredom. It can be a temptation to live our lives in imagined fantasies of what might be rather than living in the gift of what is. Um, it tempts us to camp in lethargic fantasies or rush along on some imagined grass is greener meadow. And I was thinking about this um, because, you know, it really is, and this is, I, I highlighted a lot about the antidote for this, but I, I really do feel that it is an, an ultimately a, um, an ingratitude for what we've been given. And I think that thing that I, I constantly say, which we gotta focus on what we do have and not what we don't have. We gotta focus on what's before us. We gotta figure out what is, what is the beauty in what we're doing in the moment. What is the beauty of, I've talked about the shakers before and how they made their furniture, you know, they, they made those chairs as if an angel was going to be sitting in it. And they washed the dishes as if, the, as if Jesus was coming to dinner. And I think that that has informed my thinking and it makes every single thing that we do uh, very meaningful, very purposeful. Uh, it gives us purpose to every single mundane thing that's in our day. And I think moms, you're gonna have to learn this practice and you're gonna have to teach it to your kids to enjoy and focus on what we do have, the great things that we get to do every single day and turning the mundane things into good things that we get to do with God. Um, it says, a, let's see, since acedia is a failure to appreciate the gifts of the present moment or the present season, the classic remedy for acedia has always been to abide in the good relationship, in the good, in the good relationships and to engage in the good work before us. We counter acedia's insight enticement to seek some unknown better that lies anywhere but here with an intentional and positive focus on the present. And uh, that is, uh, that, that's been the guidance that I've sort of been um, been trying to guide uh, all of my children to. But for myself, just going, stay in the moment, find the beauty in the moment, and thank God for what is. Okay, anyway, I have so much more. because That could be like a series in itself, I think. Uh, the next thing I did was I underlined, the trouble is that many of us are permanently stuck in deadline mode, leaving little time to ease off and recharge. And I talked about that since chapter one. That's definitely me. I can get my foot stuck on that accelerator as it talks about where, I, you know, you need to be in, there's deadlines to be had. So, you know, I'm, I'm a musician. I understand deadlines. I understand projects. You know, we, that's been how I live my whole life is, um, you know, working towards a project, working for, towards a performance. But then if you don't, if you're not careful, your foot can get stuck on that. Um, and you're staying in that deadline mode all, always when there's no need to be. Um, let's see, the next thing I put was when we know that God is inviting us, when we know what God is inviting us to and engage in, in it with our whole hearts and all of our energy, there's a pleasure and a joy we find in no other way. The problem comes when our accelerator is stuck and we no longer know the way to fill, to fill needs that can only be met in slowness and it helped me just that last sentence needs that can only be met in slowness and I re realized that you know I I'm aware of my weaknesses to a certain degree I guess as much as people are willing to admit 
but I try to be very aware. I try to be very self-aware. And one of the things that I've always struggled with is, is uh, you know, uh, my relationships. And I realized that, you know, part of that is just because relationships take time and they go slowly. And it takes slowness to really meet those needs. And I have to, I have to be willing to see that as an into itself to work. I'm working on my relationships. <laughs> that's why I'm here right now. I'm working on relationships and that that is an end that's, that's good and just and it deserves the time. So, um, let's see. Oh, then I, I underlined a lot of stuff just talking about how this, this, um, you know, how we, we are being accelerated by the power of technology just because that's something that I am really interested in and seeing is it really fruitful you know I've started to you know I've been reading this other book uh, about screens and teens some of you have read it um, by Kathy Cook but one of the things that I've just been thinking about is how much the you know the social media it fuels that actually the acedia the 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 imaginary life the imagined life because it actually you're able to create whoever you want to be you are a you can be a completely different person and um, it's funny because uh, I was listening to a speaker recently and he was talking about how early on before such the boom in the technology really took off um, somebody that was prominent in the field was talking about how this would be really cool to have these social platforms like this this is way back before Facebook so as Facebook was emerging and MySpace think about think about how long ago that was and this person was just talking about how cool it would be that, you know, you could kind of go online and have and assume a personality that's not yours. Sort of looking at it as a as a recreational type of thing to do. And and she had mentioned, you know, probably, you know, maybe like you could be a 40-year-old man could, you know, that's dis dis uh, disinterested in his life or disengaged could come on and be anybody he wanted to be. And it's funny because now you fast forward a decade later and realize just how true that was, but how malignant it is and how it has not turned out to be the great thing that, we, that maybe she thought it was gonna be and all the downsides of it. And I think with my teens in particular, I see that that living, um, that creating that online profile maybe hasn't helped them to appreciate who God has made them to be. Maybe that was an understatement and deserves its own thing right there. We'll, we'll do it, <laughs> we'll talk about that later. Um, okay, oh, and I love the story of them going to the third world and having the conversation, I think it was with Julio, and um, and just his, you know, the, seeing that they lived in such, um, I guess what we would feel like is poverty, but um, it's only poverty compared to what we have. And I, I can remember having the same exact experience uh, as I was traveling to El Salvador, which I've done many, many times, and traveling through the countryside um, and just noticing how people were living in the villages. And um, it's, it was actually, to tell you the truth, they were very happy and peaceful. There's lots of laughter. Um, you know, they had plenty of food, you know, we, I think the, the water we, uh, you know, had, has a problem, so we were providing clean drinking water there. But actually, for the most part, they had learned how to have a really um, fruitful and happy life. And then every once in a while, as I was driving through, I could hear from one of the huts, I, actually, they almost looked like huts to us, I could hear a TV. <laughs> and it seemed so out of place. And I was thinking, oh, almost as if it was ruining it, 
Isn't that funny? And I was thinking about how it is such a temptation to think uh, of modernizing as making something better or Americanizing things as making something better. And really, my, our mission to bring Jesus to everyone um, can sometimes become bringing America to everyone. And I was thinking about how in the early times, uh, back in the um, colonizing, where the, the Catholic Church was sending out so many, um, so many missionaries uh, across the world, and they, they made the mistake um, of thinking that Christianizing nations was Europeanizing them. And just the, the cruelty that ensued because of that. And I, I just started thinking about how, you know, we, I, I can sometimes go to this third world and say, gosh, I actually envy them because they are rich in time. And uh, we're poor in time. And I, can, I almost envy them. And um, I, I agree with him. I don't want to make too simplistic a life of poverty. I'm not saying that. But the slowness of life uh, seems way more in line with God's pace to me. But I loved what the guy said when he says, I noticed that rich people buy land out here and big build houses so they can come and rest on the weekends. I get to live out here every day. <laughs> I wouldn't trade places with them. And that just kind of cracked me up because I've met many people who, who have that mindset and I agree. I would love to figure that out, um, you know, the, the living at a different pace, right, in the middle of abundance. And then he makes this point about a good life, a rich life, an abundant life does not consist in having more material goods, but I live in a culture that is based on the assumption that that is exactly how our lives get better. And because this is deep cultural assumption, I rarely question it, even though it drives me to work harder or make more money to acquire more goods to have what I assume is a better life. The drive to possess is an engine for hurry. And it's so true. It's because it's a cultural assumption. It's the water that we're swimming in. You know, the fish don't know they're in water. We don't know what, what it is. It just seeps into us. And we have to really take a step back and go, it's true. I Actually, I'm going to reject that cultural assumption. Um, it says, while America is rich in goods, it's extremely time poor. Of course, so true. And then he goes on to talk about that within the church. And, um, you know, there's this quote, uh, a longer quote by uh, Henri Nguyen, when it says that the question that guide must all, that must guide all organizing activities in a parish is not how to keep people busy, but how to keep them um, from being so busy that they no longer hear the voice of God who speaks in silence. And the other highlight from this part is the one that says, I keep thinking that real life is all the tasks and emails and bills and projects and other things that fill my schedule, but Jesus himself is real life. And I think I come up against this all the time, every single day, you know, and working the ministry and trying to help other people, um, you know, figure out what is the right pace of ministry life. And I think that, um, you know, I, I deal with all the, the, there's a big rainbow, you know, of people, when people first become Christians, their life usually is already busy with many, many, many worldly activities. And what I have noticed over time is as they put God in the center of their universe, or of, of their solar system, and they start to say, God is my son, and now I will have everything else revolve around God, that that slowly and surely those um, worldly pursuits sort of turn into kingdom pursuits. And, um, you know, that is good as long as the motive is good, as, as long as the motive is to seek God and his kingdom first. 
And, um, but I think along the way, God uh, definitely reveals those, he purifies those motives. And he reveals when our motives really are for people pleasing or really are for um, spiritual acknowledgement, you know, the praise of man. Um, but I think something that's happened to me personally is that uh, it's funny that we're here at this camp because I can remember going, growing up in church camp all my life and I would go to camps and I would always feel like, oh, I love it here. I always felt that and I, I've and then I would, I would not want to go back to reg, regular life. And, you know, part of that is, you know, of course, you go to a camp and there's, you know, a bunch of fun and you sit up late and, you, you know, you get to swim and do all kinds of fun things. You're not working. But that's not, I don't think, what, what really was feeding my soul. I, I was fed to the soul by those camps. Be, and I, I think it, it was because there was a focus on God from the time you woke up till the time you went to bed. We were having discipleship groups and talking about what was going on in our lives. We were being honest. We were confessing sins. We were, you know, praising God every night and waking up with, with quiet times um, with Him. We were um, spending time worshiping Him. Uh, and, and then I would go back to my regular life, the paying bills life, that life that he was describing, and I would always find myself, you know, bummed. And I just would always kind of say, well, this is real life, you know, and it almost as if God is the fairy tale, as if that life is just a fairy tale. And over time, you know, I've always been, since I became a Christian, um, I have always been sort of um, coming to camps and, and helping in that way. And I started to learn over time, you know, no, that's the real life. The reason that we love camp is because that's the life that we were intended to live. Waking up, waking up with our family, waking up with our spiritual family and praising God from the time we get up till the time we go to bed. And I need to seek that as much as possible. And as much as God allows the time for me to be able to do that, I'm going to continue to seek that. And as I have sought to put God first, as I have sought that kingdom living in, in my regular life, that has become my real life. And I just encourage people to trade in you know, trade in all those worldly pursuits for true riches, for true kingdom living. You know, I, when I found the kingdom, I thought, that's the feet. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sell everything I have and buy that field. I found the treasure. I found it. And God has had to show me how to do that. Um, but I think I've never been left wanting. And my life more resembles the garden now than ever. Every time I choose to trade in time and give God, you know, I give God five minutes. I've said this before. I give God five minutes. He gives me back an hour. Every time I choose to do that, I find myself closer to garden living in everything that I do. And I don't know, that's just where my, my mind um, went as I was reading that. Um, so I don't, I don't mean to digress too much, but that was my thoughts on that. Um, let's see, what else did I put here? I put, oh, you know, I, Gerald May shares this observation. Today, many of us have been so conditioned by efficiency that the times of sitting on the porch feel less product, feel unproductive, irresponsible, lazy, even selfish. We know we need to rest, but we no longer see the value of rest as an end to itself. It's only worthwhile if it helps us recharge our batteries so we can be even more efficient in the next period of productivity. And I have learned through this book, I think it's later on in the chapters, that I definitely worship the God of efficiency. I didn't even realize that that was, it really is an idol. And I have, and I, I'm just determined to get rid of that, you know, and that reminded me of it. Um, talking about too much work, hardening of the heart, 
and uh, clogging your spiritual arteries for sure. I think that's so true. Um, and then overworking for God. I think I really just talked about that a little bit. Um, and then he talks about how um, instead of prayer of my heart echoing Jesus' own prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done, my prayer sounds more like bless where I'm trying to reign and bless what I'm trying to do. Definitely, I have had, I think I talked about in that chapter two, where it's kind of like, God bless what I'm doing, you know, here's what I have done today, help me to get my stuff done today. <laughs> and I've um, tried to work my way away from that, asking God for a good day. God, I don't really need a good day. I need to enjoy the day that you give me. Help me to enjoy the day that you've got given. Help me to enjoy the tasks that you have for me. Help me to find what those tasks are. Help me to be the person that wakes up and says, hey God, what do you want me to do today? Instead of, hey God, this is what I'm going to do. Didn't you think it was great? <laughs> so I, I'm definitely trying to move along on that. Um, Genuine productivity is not about getting as much done for God as we can manage. It is doing the good work God actually has for us in a given day. And I just love, I'm going to end with that one. You know, it's so true. Um, you know, the truth is that I am, uh, I, I do feel like that I work for God as if that, um, that scripture that Paul says when he says, His grace to me was not, was not effect, without effect. His grace to me was not without effect. I've worked harder than all of them. And, you know, it's interesting because I have worked hard with the wrong motive and I have learned how, but I still work hard. But it's just because of the grace that's working out in me. And um, I have this funny, funny story that I, I, I've never, I don't know if I've ever shared this, but a long time ago, I can't remember how, it had to be, well, it was definitely before the adoption, so it was, over six years ago, maybe 10 years ago, I can't remember. But um, I had this friend, um, she's not a Christian, but um, we went, our kids went to, to the same elementary school. And uh, we, were, we would always be working actively in the school there, and so we got to know each other. And she, you know, oftentimes I would tell her the newest thing that I'm doing, and uh, you know, we would just talk about what's going on in our lives. And I remember telling her when I was gonna homeschool, and she was like, oh, you are? She goes, I've always wanted to do that, but I'm too scared. <laughs> And I was like, oh, I'm going to try it. You know, I'm going to do it. And actually, it was pretty scary getting into it. But then later on, I, I was, she figured out, I, uh, later on in life, uh, a couple years later, I was talking to her about how we were in the process of adopting. And she just looked at me and she was like, you, you are fearless. And I was shocked that she said that. Honestly, at the moment, I was like, fearless? No, I'm not. And because I was very afraid. But I realized later now, looking back, and I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not. She goes, no, you are, you are fearless. And uh, all these years later, as I've looked back, I understand now what she was talking about. But it was like, I knew God had called me to both of those things. I knew, I knew what I was taking on was a hard thing to do. I knew it was, a, a, it was more work. I knew it was more um, costly. But I think when I figured out, but God has called me to those things, and so, so kind of who am I to say no? That's the first thing, yeah. But then the second part of it is, then he will equip me. And I think I've just always had that trust that for whatever you've been called to do, God will equip. And I think sometimes we're called to lead different things. We're called to lead a group. Or we're called to serve in this way. Or we're called, something just dropped on me from this tree that's <laughs> it keeps raining on me. Um, we're called to do these different things. 
And I think that we get into it and then it gets hard and we go, oh, maybe it wasn't true. Maybe he wasn't calling me. Maybe it's too hard. It's too hard. And I've just noticed lately how many times, you know, God called, even when he called Paul into Asia, or he, I'm not into Asia, into, uh, no, no, it was. Um, he had called them and, well, you know, actually I shouldn't have brought this up unless I knew what I was talking about. But at some point he had called them, um, him and Silas, I think it was, into uh, a certain area to to evangelize, but it was hardship all the way. I mean, it was, it was hard. It was hard thing after hard thing after hard thing. And I think that, you know, it's, it's hard as a Christian to discern, are these hard things happening because God is opposing me and he wants me to go a different way? Um, or is it just because he's called me to do this and he knew it would be hard and that's the way he decided that he was gonna train me. Don't we remember that Jesus was, he learned obedience as it says in Hebrews. Jesus learned obedience through hardship. And I think that just because something is hard, we have to go, but God called me, therefore he will equip me and he will give me everything I need for life and godliness to follow through on that that he's called me to do. So anyway, I don't know why I was moved to say that, but I'm just gonna say that. And now I'm gonna answer the questions. So, uh, oh darn it, I closed my phone, my brand new phone that I got. because. <laughs> And I got to enjoy that, all that unhurried time getting. Okay, the first question for this is, when have you most recently needed to respond without delay to a true, truly urgent need? Put differently, when has the Spirit most recently invited you into a moment of holy hurry? Now this, this is so funny. This is the question I was actually answering as I was sitting in the Apple store waiting. And I wrote, number one, well, after thinking pretty long and hard, I've come up with my last truly urgent response was at teen camp last Thursday, so 10 days ago, when I needed to take someone to urgent care. Put differently though, thinking of when the Spirit has invited me to hurry, I would say that I have felt repeatedly this week to take immediate action with several tasks. Things that usually I would put off, like an errand or a talk, and all of them have sort of paid off, so to speak. One was an important talk with the staff that probably would have been more convenient to postpone. But the spirit prompted and we all made the time and paying off in a great productive conversation. Another was a Bible study with a teen that resulted in her baptism four days later, which could have felt rushed, but to me it felt prompted. In addition, I felt God led me to accomplish specific tasks each day in a time where my ordinary schedule doesn't exist. And this is a huge deal because I often feel insecure and overwhelmed during times of travel and packing and whatnot. And actually when I get to that point where I feel overwhelmed by just the sheer number of things that has to get done, I often just sit. <laughs> I feel like I can't move. I, I feel paralyzed by the amount of things. And um, later on there's a question about procrastination. I don't know if it's procrastination. I, could, I actually couldn't identify it was just a, I feel frozen and God actually, I don't know, just each day said, I want you to do this on Monday, this on Tuesday. And I felt like he said to do those things. And so I just wrote them down and I followed his plan and um, everything got done. It's crazy. And now I'm sitting here making a video. It's crazy. I can't explain it. It's that whole, you give God five minutes, he gives you back an hour thing. That's all I can say. Okay, uh, number two, oh, that was the procrastination question. And I said, I really don't know how to answer this question right now. And um, if, if this comes to me, then I'm gonna answer it on the next video. But I wrote, I think procrastination has snuck up on me in a few areas, but because I'm so legitimately time pressed, 
it's easy for me to feel more like I just ran out of time rather than procrastinated. Actually, at this moment, I'm unsure about how to answer this question. That's what I wrote. Okay, number three, explain how this book's message about unhurriedness could tempt you to justify places of, of laziness in your thinking or your intentions or your way of life and work. And I wrote, I think my motives for being unhurried could easily slip from walking at God's speed in order to walk with God to just craving me time or self-care in the most entitled sense of the term. When life grows hard and long, I am easily tempted into self-pity and whining thinking I deserve better and perhaps being attacked by acedia, actually, which leads me to number four, <laughs> which asks, asks about when acedia sneaks up on you or struggles or it attempts you. Um, I said, I would say that acedia kicks in when parenting has taken its toll. And I think that that's when I, I, if I had to narrow down when I have a, I deserve something different mentality, it's when parenting has just become crazy over my head. I have no idea what to do right now. And actually I'm mad that I even have to do it to begin with. <laughs> that That's just the honest truth. I just go, I'm tired and I deserve a break and I'm, I'm, I'm going to take one. But what really needs to happen is I need to go to God and help get, get power from him. Then number five, this is the last one. It says, in what ways has temptation to overwork as a means of trying to establish a confident sense of identity become a place of disconnection from fruitful communion with God of that very work? And I wrote, I can remember overworking when I was gaining my identity from being a violinist. And I can remember overworking when I was gaining my identity from the praise of man early in my Christian life. But honestly, once I went through chemical recovery and found my identity in the cross, Truly getting the fact that I was created in love and exist only because of God's love, being fully known by Him in every sinful crevice of my being, I actually stopped seeking identity in what I do. Since then, I do a lot, yes, but it truly is a result of God's grace that is not without effect in me. I definitely still do too much, and I find myself blindly marching to the beat of a driven culture at times, but mostly God reveals that to me in different ways, like this book, and brings me to something closer to his original design in the garden. So I, that's, that was probably a really long video, I think probably longer than normal, but I just got so much out of that chapter, and I hope you did too. Look at this, this is amazing. I wish you were here with me, and um, I hope you, We'll share all of your comments and all the stuff you're learning under um, uh, underneath this post once you get it. And uh, we can continue going through this book together until next time.